Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance podcast on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 25. It's titled, Are You a Materialist? Before we get into the topic, we've gone through 25 episodes now, and I wanted to, to take a moment just to, to look back. There's a favorite quote I have from Steve Jobs, and he gave it in the commencement address at Stanford in 2005, and it goes, you cannot connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust the dots will somehow connect in your future. So 25 episodes down, when I started, I, I really had no idea what it was doing, or, or even where the, the podcast would go. And, and to sort of illustrate that, I want to tell you a story. Well, it's a real-life story. <laughs> it's about me. But when I was 30, I took a sizable pay cut, about a 30% pay cut, to join an investment advisory firm, an investment consulting firm that worked primarily with endowments and foundations. I wanted to get into the investment business, and, and this was sort of how I could do it. I actually answered an ad in the newspaper, if you can believe that. And so I was an analyst, but the idea was I would shortly be meeting with clients. And the, the woman that had hired me, the day I started, she announced she was moving from Ohio to Dallas, Texas. And so Ultimately, a lot of those clients that she had in the greater Cincinnati area, I would take over. So I'd been there a couple months, and I was going to go to my first client meeting with an endowment. And I was going to accompany Cindy, who I worked with. And she flew in from Dallas. I drove over from Cincinnati to Indianapolis. The meeting was held in the tallest building in downtown Indianapolis. I believe it was the 46th floor. It was a law offices, very polished, very, well, exactly what you would think a high-powered law firm in a major city would be that had offices on the top floor. And so we got off the elevator and went to the right, and there, big open door into the boardroom, and you walk in, very long table, boardroom looked over the city, and soon the room filled up with the committee members, investment committee members for this liberal arts college. They had about a 200 to $300 million endowment, and they were based in Indiana. Met people, you know, there in my, my best suit, probably wore a white shirt, and time for the meeting to start. And Cindy starts off, introduces me. Things seem like she's going well. And then she says, David will lead you through a review of the endowment's performance. And everybody looked at me. 
and and I started off. And have you have you ever been in the situation when you're speaking, and at the same time there's a dialogue going on in your head, so you can hear the words coming out of your mouth. Meantime, your other self is criticizing, analyzing an ongoing dialogue. And and here is what the voice said to me: "Run." I felt like I was so in over my head, and you know, I was thirty. Everybody else in the room, most of the board members were were fifty, and and I panicked. I I absolutely had a panic attack while I was there. I, I probably stopped speaking for a few seconds. It felt like an eternity, and, and literally, I was going to get up and leave and walk away from my investment career because I was that scared. But I didn't. I stayed in the chair. And I continued to, to give my report. It was not very good. And, and that was that. And afterwards, Cindy told me what I could have done better. And I told myself what I should have been done better is uh, don't, don't have panic attacks in the middle of presentations. But I went back several occasions to this client. And eventually, Cindy stopped coming to the meetings and, and I remember it was, it was about a year later, and I, was, I would drive over in my little white Toyota Tercel, which was, was so, this is the base, base model Tercel, the, the bumpers, we called it the little autos, the bumpers were black, the car was white, it was ugly, it smelled like plastic, and I would make sure I parked two to three blocks away from the meeting so no one could see this car I was driving, because I was supposedly the sophisticated investment advisor consultant. And I felt like I probably ought to drive a little nicer car, but I, I wasn't making much money. I was only being paid about forty grand a year to oversee this three hundred million dollar endowment. But this meeting, about a year later, I went in, and by then I knew the committee better, and and I had not only did I give a report, but I had some recommendations for them to some changes they should make to their endowment. And, and I gave it, the meeting went well, and I remember driving back to Cincinnati thinking, I can't believe they actually believed me. They, there's this thing called the imposter syndrome where you, where you, you sometimes feel like an imposter. But I, I didn't so much feel like an imposter. I, I just felt relieved that they trusted me. And so when I started this podcast, it, it was very much the same way. In, in the sense that I hadn't ever podcasted before. And I remember the first time I spoke into the mic, I spoke for 30 to, to 40 seconds, and I almost, again, walked away. I don't want to do this. It, it's, it's too hard to talk not being able to see who you're speaking to. So for so many years, I spoke to live audiences. And, and at, at, I was at FinCon, a conference in New Orleans, here a couple of weeks ago, and I was speaking with Jeff Goins, one of the keynote speakers, and we were talking about the difference between podcasting and giving keynote speaks, speeches, and, and we talked about how you feed off the audience, how you can see what's going on. Well, with podcasting, you, you, you don't do that. And, and literally, I didn't even know if I would have an audience. And so we're 25 episodes in, and what has been absolutely remarkable is how you, the listener, over these past four to five months have come into my mind's eye to where I could see who you are. I've gotten your emails. I, I know many of your situations. I have a better idea 
of, of the demographics. And it's, so, it's been so rewarding to sort of be able to speak and then see, in my mind's eye, who's actually there. Just to kind of give you an idea, the audience has gone from literally dozens to hundreds to thousands. The audience or listeners are about it's 75% or so in the U.S. that you would expect. But the top 10 countries are U.S., Canada, Australia, United Kingdom, South Africa, Germany, Sweden, Norway, India, Singapore. And there are over 100 other countries where there are listeners to the podcast. And I thank you for listening. I thank you for your emails. Thank you for your reviews. Thank you for subscribing to the podcast. And and thank you for just for listening. And and even when you didn't want to, I kind of reviewed this past week from Jake and he said when he found the podcast, he thought this would be great. He's in college and he was he was gonna use it to fall asleep. And that was his idea, but he, he said he listened for three hours. So even if you listen just to fall asleep, that's fine. Thanks for listening. So the quote from Steve Jobs, looking forward, you can't connect the dots, but looking back, you can. And, and so I'm, I'm a person that I don't like to necessarily outline or script out what I'm going to say. And, and it's the same way I've done some fiction writing. And some people, when they write fiction, if they're going to write a novel, they want to map out the entire story do an outline, and then fill in the details. I'm not like that. I'd rather learn the story as I go, as I write it. And I once attended a writing seminar for a week in Aspen with a writer named Ron Carlson. And and that's how he writes. He lets it reveal, the story reveal itself by staying in the chair, staying in the chair and writing and when he gets lost in terms of what's going to happen next, he always focuses on what he calls the inventory. There's a phrase he uses, the truth is in the body. He focuses on what are the characters doing? What's in the room in his, as, you know, as he is he imagining it in his mind? What's going on? And so he lets the inventory what he has in terms of the characters, what's in the room to guide the next step. And he watches what goes on. In our own lives, the same way. All we have is our inventory, our existing skills, the, exi- the, exist- the things that we have, and, and we put them together. And there's this concept that Stuart Kaufman, who is a professor of biology at University of Calgary, And he wrote a book called Reinventing the Sacred. And he used this term called the adjacent possible. And Stephen Johnson in his book, Where Good Ideas Come From, also used this phrase. And the the phrase adjacent possible means that new things that come about typically are made from recombining the existing inventory, the existing parts and they might be combined in novel ways. There might be a chemical reaction to where something totally new is created. But we start with our existing parts. And, and that's what I did with this podcast. I knew investing. And so a number of podcast episodes have been on how to invest. 
I've, the other inventory I had was I had a fairly good idea how the financial and monetary system worked, how the economy works. And so a number of those episodes ha- have been on that. But there's been a third area where I know a little less about because it's, I'm still exploring it like you are. And, and we'll call that that third leg of the podcast so far, How to Live. And, and it's more the philosophy of money, how we spend it, how we, our individual decisions impact the, the entire global economy and the global environment. And we've had some episodes on that, such as episode five, True Cost of a Thing. I've used phrases like how to live like you're retired in episode 19. Episode 10 was how to live like you're rich without the money. But it's this philosophy or it's just how to live with the money that we have and and just those things. Let's move forward with season two, 25 more episodes. We'll see where the dots end up connecting. By the way, I said Jake, I referred to the review that he left where he was trying to fall asleep with the podcast. It was actually Justin. Just wanted to to correct that. So what is a materialist? Think about your favorite items that, that you've had for years, what is it that you like about them? Are, are they, do they have flaws in them because you've used them? They've been nicked up. Perhaps there's a slight tear or a dent that have given it character. But what, what, what is it about that object that you like? A materialist is someone that values the the goods that they own for their own sake. In other words, they don't they didn't buy them for because they would look popular, because that's what everybody else was doing, because advertising said if they would buy them they would be more manly, more attractive. They bought them because it was inherently good. It, it, there was something about it that spoke to them. And perhaps it was an unbranded item, it, it, no, no brand at all. But there was something, something about it. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see 
all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. In the 1980s, I lived in the Yucatan in Mexico for a time, and this I knew a man there named Velasquez, and he was a chapeo, which means his job was to climb up into trees, and with a machete, he would cut down branches, and the branches would have leaves on it, and, and these were pretty fast-growing trees. I forget the name of the tree. And then the branches and the leaves he would take, and, they, and they, somebody would buy them from him to feed to their, to their cattle. And I watched this man. He invited me over to his house to eat with his family. The house was, was thatched, was made. The roof was thatched. The walls were made out of sticks. It wasn't even tall enough for me to stand. And this man owned very, very little. But I saw how he cared for that machete and, and how it was a tool for him that was well let me let me read you a quote that from one of my favorite books Suetsu Yanagi is the author it's called the unknown craftsman and and this quote describes at least in my mind how this machete appeared to to Velasquez why should one reject the perfect in favor of the imperfect the precise and perfect carries no overtones, admits no freedom. The perfect is static and regulated, cold and hard. We in our own human imperfections are repelled by the perfect since everything is apparent from the start and there is no suggestion of the infinite. Beauty must have some room, must be associated with freedom. Freedom indeed is beauty. The love of the irregular is a sign of the quest for freedom. Only an object that is natural and wholesome manifests true beauty. 
And this natural beauty is a beauty Buddhist idea. Objects that reveal ambition, objects in which lack of taste is knowingly simulated, objects where some quality such as strength or cleverness is exaggerated, these will not be universally admired for long, although they may create momentary furrow. Furrow. F-U-R-O-R. <laughs> so this machete that I saw, it was plain. It was black. It had a hand-tied little string around it made out of henneken, which was the plant that they grew in that area of the Yucatan. And it had nicks in it, and it was imperfect. Yet it gave Velasquez the freedom to work to support his family. It was wholesome. And it wasn't branded by any means. And and so when we talk about being a materialist, when we buy things, one, going back to episode five, we have to recognize when we buy something, the money that we pay and giving up is our freedom. We worked for that money. So we were giving up. It cost us freedom to be able to buy that. So what we buy needs to imbue us with freedom itself. It's got to have an essence to it. It has to have some substance to it. It can't be flashy. We can't buy it because that's what all the cool kids are doing. We buy it because it has that special something that that speaks to us. An example when I, my first trip to Japan with my son, Camden, we were in northern Japan, or, or at least north of Tokyo, in Sendai, actually, where the tsunami came through. This was about six months prior to that. And I went in, we went into a, a, a used clothing store, and, and on, the jack, on the wall, there was his jacket. And in this jacket, it it, it almost shimmered. It, it was it sounds weird. It does sounds bizarre, but it, it almost shimmered. And, and I took it down, and it and it fit perfectly. And the reason why it shimmered it was because it, on the edges it was corduroy. It it had been worn and discolored, and so it actually had. It wasn't shiny, but it almost seemed to dance, and. And I don't know if anybody else saw that, but I bought the jacket, and I and I love that jacket. But it it is, and it's a brand nobody's heard of, some made in Japan, Japanese brand. And it's interesting that there's objects in our lives that seem that that speak of freedom. They they seem to speak to us, and when we we should purchase those items when we we come upon them. That's what being a materialist is it's buying things recognize one the freedom and the cost that we gave up to buy them but two buy them not because we want to be flashy or be they shouldn't be overly embellished in fact there's this concept called wabi-sabi which in another Japanese word is shibui, and it talks about imperfect objects and objects that 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 have some reticence to them. That that just everything isn't apparent at first. You actually have to draw out the beauty. And Leonard Corin wrote in a book 
which I think he called wabi-sabi. He said objects, well, here's what he says, pare down to the essence, but don't remove the poetry. Keep things clean and unencumbered, but don't sterilize. It also means keeping conspicuous details to a minimum, but it doesn't mean removing the invisible connective tissue that somehow binds elements into a meaningful whole. It also doesn't mean in any way diminishing something's interestingness, the quality that compels us to look at something over and over and over again. Those are the kind of objects that we should be seeking in our lives. And in past episodes, I talked about how what the economy is. And the economy is measured. It's a measure of all the productive output in a country, the goods and the services that are produced. That's what economic growth is. If, if the dollar value of goods produced increases from one quarter to next, the economy grew. It's not the number of things produced. It's the value, the price. And, and I've stated that in order for an economy to continue to grow, given the limited resources that we have, we as a people and individuals need to pay more for things, but pay more because there's more art put into them, that we're not tr- buying the cheapest thing available. We would rather buy things that somebody imbued with their creative power, essentially. And here's an example. You can get a haircut in my Idaho town for, I think the barber, there might be a barber that charges 10 bucks. And I've gone to him. When I first moved here, I went to him. And and my hair is is as straight as can be, unless I put some type of product in it. And in fact, my mom just did a photo album, and I'm looking at my my school pictures, and my hair is whacked. It's just, it's a disaster from age five until 19, until I discovered hair product. Cutting my hair, as one hairdresser said, is like cutting a bonsai tree. Mistakes show. And, and this barber made a lot of mistakes. And, and so I went on this mission to figure out, all right, what is the price point to pay for a haircut to where it's a good haircut? In a sense, it's art. Somebody that actually knows how to cut hair. And for years, since I traveled so much for work, I would try out different hairstylists. And I found a handful that I would go to as I travel. One was in Seattle, one was in San Diego. There was someone in New York. And and a good haircut takes about an hour when they do it right. And I'm not saying, not everybody, but the people that I went to, they would take an hour and they weren't diddle-a-daddling. They were actually cutting my hair, pruning it like it was a bonsai tree. And it... I don't know what I paid. Let's say I paid 50 or $60, so not $10. So it took three or four times as long. It cost, you know, the value given. The, the, the barber could have given four or five haircuts in the time that it cost this one stylist to cut my hair. And so the impact on the economy was the same, 
in terms of the, the production that was made, in, in terms of the service given, because it was the dollar value, yet those haircuts were like art. And, and there was meaning in them, to the extent there can be meaning in a haircut. But it, it wasn't a hack job that was done as quickly as possible just to get it done. It was done. The productivity of the, the second stylist, they weren't as productive. But they charged more because ultimately we're not measuring the haircut based on how productive it is. We're, we're measuring based on what it looks like at the end. And it took longer, but it looked much, much better. So let's strive to be better materialist. Let's buy things not for the message they convey to others in terms of because it's popular, because that's what everyone's wearing or, or caring about. Let's buy things because they're individual to us, because what those objects say to us, because of the freedom that it, it gives us for the way they speak to us. Let's buy things that are art, that support the artisans, the craftsmen, the, those that are, are building things that are being less productive, but they're building art. Now, it's a little philosophical today, today's episode. I hope I, I conveyed it well. My suggestion is, is go, go read Leonard Corrin's book, Wabi Sabi. It's short. It's excellent. Go read Unknown Craftsman by Suetsu Yanagi. It's longer. It's mostly about pottery, but it's one of those books where you read it, and it isn't so much what it says, but what it's not saying, if that makes sense. There's some books when you read, it's just the thoughts that it brings to your mind, and just a different way of looking at the world. So I'm not that in into pottery, but... It, it uh, it's a book about pottery, but on another level, it, it's not about pottery at all. So I'll have links to both of those in the show notes. Just if you have suggestions for future topics, you can email me at jd at jdavidstein.com. Those show notes that I mentioned are available at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also, I would encourage you to sign up for my insider's guide. That way I can just email you the show notes I'll weekly. And in those weekly emails, I answer listener questions. I share things that didn't make it into the podcast that I happened to see this past week. I, I shared a podcast interview that I thought was just fascinating. Kevin Kelly was interviewed by Tim Ferriss. And I'll put the link to that in, in, in this week's show notes again, because it, Kevin Kelly, co-founder of Wired, he, in that interview, sh- spoke on a lot of the same themes that we talk in this podcast about. And so that's what I put in the Insider's Guide. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. Everything I've shared with him in this podcast is for general education only. I've not considered your risk profile, which means I've not provided investment advice. While I might have shared in past episodes and in future episodes, we'll share what I'm doing with my own portfolio. Please don't take them 
as investment advice. Consider them some additional knowledge so as you make your decisions, you have sort of a better foundation. Next week, episode 26. Thanks for joining. And please continue to share the podcast with others. That's how it grows organically as you share with others. Thanks for doing so and thanks for subscribing. Have a great week.